Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Mindful Hunter Podcast. I'm your host as always, Jay Nickel. So I'm kind of traveling in time because I'm recording this intro after we've already done the podcast. Me and Nolan kind of just started talking and it was flowing and I didn't want to interrupt it with some clunky intro. So I just let the conversation roll. You're about to hear a conversation I had with Nolan Osborne. Nolan is an accomplished hunter, guide, and co-host of the Beyond the Kill podcast and works closely with um, the team at the Journal of Mountain Hunting is one of the key players over there. Nolan is very well known and regarded in the British Columbia hunting industry and just an over overall really great guy. Um, when I decided to do my goat hunt last year, I know I knew he had done it previously and, and I reached out to him and he was more than happy to have a phone call with me. And that was before he knew anything about me or we'd even met. So I've always kind of really appreciated who Nolan is as a person. And we had a great conversation. So if you could take a moment and engage with the podcast, like, comment, share, subscribe, leave a review on iTunes or Spotify, that would be greatly appreciated. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Nolan Osborne. And I think too, something you said that I really resonated with me. So I came from the forestry engineering background. Mm -hmm. So I'd spent 15 years in the mountains of British Columbia, like leading crews of people in remote locations and getting dropped off in helicopters on top of mountains and being picked up on the river bottoms at the end of the day. And I like, I was very, very comfortable by myself in the mountains in very treacherous conditions so that when I got exposed to backcountry hunting, I almost felt like it was a bit of a cheat code. Like, mm. <clears throat> because all the other, all of the stuff that was just non-hunting, I felt super familiar with. And so I could just take all of my energy and focus just on acquiring those hunting skills. And that's something I try and share with people too, because most people who are coming into this don't have any of that other shit. So it's mm -hmm. like, not only are you trying to learn how to go hunt in treacherous conditions? You're just trying to survive out there. Like literally just getting from A to B is one of the toughest things you may have ever done in your life. And it may be the first time that you found yourself in these types of situations. But I do find that people who had some type of really intense mountain-related sporting or work background get a super like... Oh, um, elevated ramp up into mm. backcountry hunting. And in their like second, third year, they're, they're going out there like guys who've been doing it for seven, eight, nine years. Mm -hmm. Still lacking, like it still takes a lot longer to develop that like real keen hunting skill. And I like, that's, I still feel like I'm light years from that, but mm -hmm. at least being able to put together like a thoughtful two week backcountry trip is like, seems really easy to me these days. Like that part is oh, yeah. not yeah. difficult. You know what I mean? The logistics yeah. and getting in and getting out and like where to camp, like all that stuff comes as second nature now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, that's interesting too. And I'm like, I know why I sometimes hunt, I hunt with a bunch of, you know, a wide range of, of experience in my friends. And, and some of them, it's kind of like, you know, very much low level experience and some guys backpack for sheep every single year and, and, um, are, are really good with that stuff, but it always sort of that, that element of it surprises me. Cause that's definitely something I take for granted. You know, yes. you do some, especially with a couple backpack, uh, like goat hunts in February and stuff. Like once you can, 
you know, once you can do that or, or you know, like, hey, navigation, survival and uh, and finding good campsites is no longer an issue, then it really frees up the rest of your mind to just focus on the task at hand. And then there's lots of times like I don't even, um, you know, I won't pour over maps super hard or really yeah. pick like, Hey, this camp location, like I'll look at the maps, get, get a visual of what I think the terrain's going to look like. And then be like, all right, well, we'll just hunt it. Right. Like you go yeah. in and, and whatever's there is there. And you know, you just, yeah. I, and I think that's like, I think I've just seen myself start to in the last two years really with guiding, um, like fall more into that where I'm not, I'm not worrying about like trying to find the animal. I'm just yes. hunting. Yeah. And it's been great. It's been like a blast. It's been not to say that I've got everything dialed down or anything like that, but just feeling confident enough. You're like, Hey, I can go into an area and just hunt it like how it should be hunted uh, and not be so worried about, well, what if I'm doing this? What if I'm doing that? Where should I camp here? Or should I, where is there going to be water? Or, you know, you just kind of like, Hey, we'll just figure it out. And that is a very interesting insight. Cause I still feel like there's times when the hunt that I've prepared for isn't the hunt that I show up to. And there's this like pivot period where like sometimes I'm good at it and I'm able to get around at it and I'm able to like come at it from a new angle and like figure out what's going on. And other times I'm not like, and it just, I just fail and it just, it just doesn't work out for me because I'm not able to, maybe I don't have enough time or whatever. I'm just not able to regroup and reposition, but that's very, I really like that kind of perspective because it's, it's just showing up in what the hunt, because we do have these like preconceived notions. Oh, for sure. yeah. of, and I think that's kind of important, especially in the beginning, you got to have some type of plan. You oh, can't God, just yeah. go out there and wing yeah. it. And I think what you're talking about is that almost elevating to that unconscious competence where it's like, you not only have a plan, but you have so many plans that now they're just sitting back there waiting for you. And yeah. that, as the countryside unfolds, your brain is kind of flipping through those and like, okay, I've been in this kind of situation before. And last time we were here, we did that and that really worked out good or this didn't work out so good. So we'll try like a slightly, and we don't even really think about all of those things. Like, and then it just comes out as your hunt plan and your reaction. So I really like that. That's going to be a bit of a goal of mine moving forward. I like that showing up and just hunting the hunt that is there and not forcing the hunt mm. that you were expecting on the area when it might not be the hunt that you should be hunting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it, it can go both ways, right? Like you, like you said, yeah. I mean, it's good to have, especially, especially if you're not uh super experienced, like when I yeah. say, Oh, you just show up and hunt an area. It's like, well, that's coming from someone who spends 150 days hunting a year, does it professionally. Yeah you know, have been in all kinds of scenarios and stuff like that. Uh, so it's easy to, it's easy to say in the same way that I, yeah, I don't know. I was going to make some gym analogy, but I don't know enough about gym stuff to even do that. So, um, uh, but yeah, it, it, it is one of those things like you have to have that, um, you know, you have to have a pretty high competence level, I think yeah. to, be able to achieve that. But even I think if people try and do that in, in maybe in a smaller area, like maybe you're just going out and hunting for yes. and instead of getting really, you know, spun out on like, okay, well, I have to be at this place by this time. And then if I'm not there, then that, then I can't get up to there. And it's like, just kind of taking a step back and being like, look, you know, hunting is just me taking in data, processing it and making the best available, 
you know, best decisions that I have available to me. And the only way you get better at that is by continuing to do that. Right. And, and continuing to put yourself in those situations. So I think especially like, it's interesting now, especially for me on personal hunts, like if it's not a, if it's not a draw tag, um, or something quote unquote special, if I'm just out hunting, you know, mule deer hunting or blacktail hunting or stuff like that, um, I, it's, it's become quite fun. Just sort of like, right. Hey, I'm just going to go out and whatever, and just roll with the punches. Right. And I, and I think that that's really what, that's probably the biggest thing with guiding is like, there's just so many, like you think one thing's happening and then you have a horse wreck or someone else right. needs this, or you suddenly don't have a Wrangler or, you know, someone tells you, Hey, well, I actually want you to go like the outfitter tells you, well, you're actually going to go 80 kilometers to the South and hunt sheep down there in a spot you've never even looked at before. Uh, so there's all those elements that you just, I think it's one of those things. Like if you stay in the industry, you really just have to get good at rolling with, you know, whatever comes to you. And, um, but at the same time, like shit, man, that's, that's how the wolves hunt, right? They don't have fat maps and yeah, all this shit. Like, okay, well, sure. this time of year we're going to, they just roll into an area and, and, you know, take everything in process it and, and pick it apart. I like think too, predator. something else you said about the kind of taking the stress off on the personal hunts. I have only just recently in the last couple of hunts got to the point where I don't feel the same obligation to produce or mm. like this anxiety that I'm going to come home empty handed. And that like says something about me as a hunter and like it ruins trips for me. It has ruined mm -hmm. trips for me. Like I get so stressed out that I'm, that I'm not going to, and I don't do easy hunts. So it's like, I fail a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, and that used to really get to me and it's only been in the last couple. And I, I don't want to sound arrogant, but I, I, I think I've just taken an, I've been successful enough that I don't feel like I have to prove myself anymore. And mm. it's like, sometimes the cards just aren't dealt your way. And no matter what you were going to do, and this is one of my favorite things about hunting, because coming from a guy who's like pretty focused and pretty successful and like normally gets my way because I'm willing to do whatever it takes to succeed. Mm -hmm. Hunting doesn't give a shit about that. Like I like to say you could do everything perfectly. And if you don't have that five per 10% luck break your way, you're going home empty handed, no matter what you did. Yeah. Um, you can't be a hundred percent successful ever, every never. time. And I, that's yeah. what I love about it because it forces you to like choke that failure pill every now and then, no matter yeah. how good you are, no matter how good you think you are, you're still going to go home empty handed every now and then. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think it's, it is great. It's humbling. Um, you know, and, and that's really what, what pushes both of us to, to keep at it. Right. It's like, if yeah. you didn't have those, then it wouldn't, I know that's like kind of a cliche thing. Everybody says that, but it is true. It's, and it's hard sometimes for, for new hunters to hear that. Cause they're like, Hey, I'm on year three and I haven't killed a deer. Like, fuck you yeah. guys. You're like, Oh, it's nice to be, it's nice to come home unsuccessful sometimes. Yeah. Um, but no, but yeah, I, I mean, you are right. Right. It's like, you get enough, you get enough of that behind, uh, behind you. And, and certainly I think I used to feel that way when it came to guiding, like for my personal, that's gotta hunts, be a tough one, man. That's Yeah. That I, I would find that difficult because yeah. there is like, there's a business relationship, there's an obligation and the type of stuff you're guiding. Like I, I've never even been around those types of hunters who have paid that type of money to like, that's just a whole other world that like, 
I, I've been on like, you know, three, $4,000 guided hunts, like some black bears and some coos deer. And like, well, if you don't get anything, yeah. you don't get anything. It's like, but like guys showing up who are paying like 60, 70, 80 grand for sheep and stuff. Like that's just like, and maybe they're cool as shit. And maybe 70 grand to those guys is like five grand to me. I don't know, but that depends, is, a, that's a yeah. weird spot to be, man. Yeah. There's, a, you know, there's a lot of pressure. There is. Uh, I think you have to be, to be, to be good at guiding, you have to be comfortable with that. Right. Right. Um, and certainly like, you know, I think the first, the first sheep hunt I guided was certainly like the price of that hunt was a good chunk more than I, I knew I was going to make that entire year. Right. So like, yeah. it's a little bit of a mind fuck with that where you're like, yeah. okay, I have two weeks to, you know, to make good on this guy who just spent more than my year's earnings. Yes. And you're kind of like, but it's what, it's like anything, right? Like if you just stew in the pressure and you let that build up, it's going to be the monkey on your back and you're never going to like, you just have to kind of be like, look, you know, in my case, it's like the outfitter feel obviously feels competent. Like his, you know, yeah. his, his business and how his business comes across and, and it's, um, you know, its reputation is obviously important to him. And if he feels that I'm competent enough to do this, then I'm fucking competent enough to do this. And I'm going to do, you know, there's always going to be that element, like you said, of luck and you can't, um, you know, you can't guarantee it. But the way I've always looked at it is like, I can't control weather. I can't control animals, but I can always control the kind of experience that my client's going to have in my camp. So if they can walk away from that and say, you know, Hey, if, if we weren't successful, this guy busted his ass for me every single day. It was great to talk to, was engaged and polite and da 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 da. It's like if I can have that person walking away feeling like, you know, I had a great it's you know, sucks that I didn't get a sheep say, but I had a fantastic time and and I'd love to spend time in camp with him again. Like that's that's the most success you can look for, I think, as a guide. Cause you can't go, you can't bat a hundred percent. No. Okay. So let's, let's back it up a, a little bit. Cause I think this is perfectly segueing into kind of where I was hoping it was going to go. So w- when did you initially get exposed to hunting? Like, are you, do you come from a hunting family? Not really, not like conventionally. No, my uncle, my mom's, uh, so my mom's two of my mom's brothers hunted, uh, spent quite around a bit of time around them as kids, but I didn't grow up like, you know, shooting pellet guns and going grouse hunting or, right. or anything like that. Um, I think I was probably 15 years old and my uncle invited me at, um, at Thanksgiving. He said like, Hey, you know, I've talked okay. to your folks and, and they're down with it. I've hunted my whole life. You want to come out and experience this? I'd love to take you. No pressure. Uh, so I went out black powder hunting i went in the muzzleloader season uh probably early december or something in ontario in ontario okay in ontario yeah yeah Yeah. so like southern uh yeah southern ontario just like an hour two two three hours north of toronto um is that's kind of where i grew up so we went out uh hunting private property i just sat there on it like he basically sat me and was like hey you know you don't don't move anywhere blah 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 um and never saw a deer. I think we went out for a couple of days or maybe even okay. just one afternoon. I don't remember, but, uh, never saw a deer was hooked. Like I was always, as a kid, I was big on, uh, like nature, wildlife, uh, really interested in that kind of stuff. Um, so for me, it was kind of like this whole new world. I spent tons of time. I grew up like outside all the time, skiing, mountain biking, skateboarding and stuff like that, but never really in the woods, like didn't do a lot of fishing. Um, okay or anything like that. My dad had a big sports background, but not so much like, uh, you know, the outdoors canoeing and all that kind of stuff. So that was kind of 
sort of how I got into it. And then, um, yeah, I just really like, I, there was just like a switch was flipped on. And for me, it was just really consuming. Uh, I worked landscaping all through high school and my, it's for my, uh, best friend's older brother. And he ended up becoming one of my best hunting, uh, hunting partners, but he was big. He's like six years older than me, eight years older okay. than me. And so he was big on like reloading and hunting and all this kind of stuff. He was in his early twenties at the time. And, uh, yeah. So he, we were always, you know, at work and stuff, we're always talking reloading and ballistics and I'm asking questions about this hunting and that hunting. And, um, so his family, they, they lived down the street from me, his dad hunted as well. And, and his okay. family's kind of like a second family to me. And so I spent a bunch of time with, with my buddy Cam's older brother, Trev and his father hunting with them. And then with my uncle as well. Um, but I didn't really, I wouldn't say I like really dove into it until I was like 18 and could get fully like as an adult licensed, get your own firearm in Canada and, and all that kind of stuff. And then I just like went balls to the wall, like every possible, every, every free minute I had in the hunting season, I was hunting, you know, I was skipping, I went to college for, uh, like applied, applied photography, commercial photography. Okay. Um, and so, you know, I'd be skipping like any, any Fridays and stuff I could, I'd be like, Oh, you know, it's don't worry, mom, we don't have anything going on. Like I'm going to go up and go hunting with my uncle goose hunting or deer hunting kind of anything we could. And, and the bulk of my experience was actually like waterfowl and, okay. and turkeys. Uh, I shot two. Is that right? Yeah. Two deer while I still lived in Ontario, Okay, a, a doe and a small buck. Um, and then went through some kind of changes. Like I ended up working as a fisheries technician, uh, research technician in the fisheries department at the university of Western in London, Ontario for my buddy, Cam, his middle brother, Mike was doing a PhD in, in Chinook salmon in the great lakes. Okay. And we'd spent a bunch of time hunting together. And he's like, Hey man, I'd love to have you as a research tech, you know, and I wasn't, I didn't have a background in science. I never even took grade 12 science. He was just like, you know, I know you're good in the field. I know like long hours and shitty conditions don't bother you. That's really what I'm after on this. We're going to be doing a bunch of field work, uh, collecting, you know, salmon data and eggs and, and sperm and stuff like that. So anyways, I got, uh, I got into that and I was living downtown Toronto at the time, like in, uh, East kind of just East of downtown around the beaches. And okay. it was a little bit of like, I almost didn't do it because, I remember thinking to myself, like, well, I went to school for commercial photography. I really enjoyed it. And I'm just starting to get more traction, like freelance assisting for different photographers in the city. And like, do I really want to, after, you know, three years pushing into this industry, do I really want to just abort my place downtown Toronto and go fuck around in the bush? Um, and then I had a great moment of clarity where I was like, well, every time I'm like every free chunk that I have. If I know I don't have an assistant gig for three days, I'm back up in Barrie where I grew up and I'm out building duck blinds in the swamp or setting yeah. up tree stands or limbing stuff or scouting, shed hunting, anything I can. And it was just kind of like, well, shit, why wouldn't I get paid to do this? Like, even if it's just a short stint, originally it was going to be a six month contract. Um, and I think that was the moment for me where that like really changed how I viewed what I wanted to do sort of as a career and I didn't right. land on hunting right away, but it, but it definitely opened that, um, opened that door. And I ended up doing a year with Western. I did finished up my six month contract and then did another contract with a, with the guy who's a master's student there. Um, same lab, same, you know, same rivers and stuff like that. And, uh, 
And then once that was done, it was kind of, I think at that point, like maybe halfway through that, I actually went to visit my sister in Vancouver and she had moved there a couple of years before. And, and basically, and you know, we're super tight. We grew up, we grew up close. We're like two years apart in age. And, um, and she was like, Hey, you know, you, you should move out West. Like what the fuck else are you doing? Basically? I was like yeah. 20, I would have been maybe 22 at the time. Right. Okay. Um, and, and I always wanted to, like, I always loved BC and we'd come out here when I was a kid skiing. And the first time I ever was in BC, like I fell in love with it. The mountains were amazing, especially coming from a kid who's like interested in, you know, skiing, mountain biking yeah. and nature. And then you arrive in BC and you're like, okay, well, why do I live in this pan flat place? That's yes. like, yes. Okay. Recreation. Yeah. But, but BC is the man. Yeah. I grew up at blue mountain in Collingwood, bro. Oh, like there, that. there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, no, so I, I grew up hunting in, in Barrie and then Owen Sound. So just up. I was born in Owen Sound. I, did we, have we talked about that? We haven't. You, okay. When Adam first had me on the journal, I'm sure he asked where I was from. So you probably have like some subconscious awareness okay. that I was there. But it's funny you talked about Barrie. I used to live in Barrie. I used to live in London. I was the a network administrator for the new VR for the computer system at the at the television station, the new VR. Oh, dude, I yeah. haven't heard that in years. Yeah, man. Yeah, so that's that's my neck of the woods. Like, I, I lived all over those those um, those areas. We tended to go hunt like North Bay. So my yeah. family, it was once a year moose hunt. Nothing okay. happened the rest of the year, and it was a wall tent at the end of a logging road. Um, pretty decent setup. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like kerosene heaters and cots and like a lot of beer. Um, yeah. but they got after it. Like, didn't matter how hungover you were, you rolled out of bed at four 30 in the morning and you went and found some asshole swamp somewhere. <laughs> and you sat there gnawing on steak bones from the night before hoping some fucking moose. Cause there's 18 guys in one tag, yeah. you know, somebody's going to see a moose. Like that was, you know, the two years that I had that before I had like a falling out with my old man was kind of oh, in that you know, North okay. Bay. I, re I do remember all this from. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. So, but, but, it, but it's funny. Yeah. We are from very similar locations for sure in Ontario. And I, I can relate almost wholeheartedly. The only difference for me is that I'd actually already spent a great deal of time in Thunder Bay doing my degree at Lakehead. And yeah. the Northern Lake Superior region is like pretty intense for sure. Like topographically. And so if I had not have spent time there and it went straight from Southern Ontario to BC, I would have had like that, that awe, like, what the fuck is this? But I feel like Northern Ontario is pretty severe. And for so sure. I, it wasn't quite as dramatic, but I, but I did feel instantly at home. I was like, oh, well, this is where I'm supposed to be. You know, I, yeah. and I got here at 23 and that was 20 years ago. And except for two years, I lived in Australia. I've never left. Like yeah. I visited back home, but I've not, it would, I wouldn't even remotely consider living anywhere else in the world other than I BC. couldn't agree more. There's, I was just talking about my folk with my folks about that. I was back in Ontario for, uh, you know, like three weeks through December. Okay. Uh, visiting family, which was great. Yeah, uh, but yeah, but, you know, my folks and my uncle who I, I hunted with and stuff, we, my fiance and I went out there and, and I took her out to the farm that we always hunt, like my uncle and my aunt's farm. And, um, you know, some of those places that she's heard all of these things like, oh, she knows I've been here, here, but it doesn't have yeah. a visual. So we got to do that. And my uncle was kind of asking me, he's like, well, you know, do you think you'd ever move back? I'm like, no, man. Like, no. 
We it's too good. It's, it's too, too good. good. It's yeah. too good. Too yeah, good. I'm actually uh, I'm going to get into this probably next week, but I brought my old man out once before mm. um and we took him up the Musqua on mm. a jet boat and he's coming back out again this year. He's going to be 66. Um, and we're going to do a fly in caribou hunt. Nice. Um, but th- it just like blows his, like he's, oh. ju- he comes out for these things and he's just like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> like it's crazy. Yeah. It just blows his mind compared to, you know, what we used to do hunting and the type of terrain that he's used to and just the remoteness of it all. And the expanse, like your it's brain to- in Ontario, you just can't comprehend, man. Yeah. Like, you just never get that far away from people. You can't physically, it's impossible. Some of those, like I've done some tree planting shit, like Hearst and like Northern, Northern Ontario, where you're like, you're starting to get pretty out there, but you're still nothing compares to Northern British Columbia. No, yeah, hundred percent. You know, where you're 4,000 feet above a valley and you're looking out and you're, there's just nothing. Yes. Like it's just mountains as far as the eye can see. I think that's what you don't have because Northern Ontario is quite, I mean, shit, if you were going to get lost somewhere. Yep. I'd be getting lost. I'd get lost way faster out there than I, I would, would too. I need mountains. Flats fuck me up. Yeah. As long as there's an up and a down and a left and a right, <laughs> I'm good. True. But yeah. but you stick me in the flats, it's like compass is coming out, bro. For sure. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so that's kind of like that's that's my background in a nutshell. Uh, you know, at that point I, I ended up moving out here when I was 23 with the goal to become a hunting guide. Okay. Um, I didn't no, I literally knew nothing about it. Never met a hunting guide before in my life. Uh, you know, I'd watched some shows on Wild Well, and you're TV. going into eight seasons now, two wrangling, six guiding? Yeah. So that would have taken us to, it's 21 to 2013. Like pretty nascent social media too. Like there's not a lot of, of information. Like these days, it's pretty easy to get information about that kind of stuff. And I'm assuming mm-hmm. there wasn't a ton around when you first got out here? Not like a ton, a ton, but I also didn't even really, like, I didn't even really know where to start. I mean, I've been right. using Instagram, I think since maybe 2009 or 10, like because okay. of my photography background. Right. And that was originally, you know, it was this idea that photographers are always sharing everyone's website and everyone's portfolio. And this is kind of funny. It's, it's like so manicured. So this is this way that people can just share these sort of instant, you know, like a snap that's not, it's not doctored. It's not like right. this, this grand, um, you know, presentation of what one's life is, which is kind of ironic because now that's the exact opposite, yeah. right? And everything you look on there, you're like, it's not your day to day. Like, No, it's perfectly manicured, filtered, curated. Exactly. Look yeah. at how great I am and how awesome my life is. Yeah. Yeah. But anyways, uh, and so that didn't really come about through that. I mean, I just cold called outfitters for and emailed them for like a year. And it's like, I don't know, maybe I think in some ways I was, it was like the, my, uh, the fact that I was naive about it was, was really what helped me be successful in it. I think that's a great insight, man. When you don't realize how ridiculous something that you're trying to do is, I think it, 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 it helps you succeed sometimes. Mm. Yeah. And it just was one of those things where it was like, well, I don't really know what else to do other than just cold call people and send them emails and be like, Hey, I've never been on a horse or in the mountains. Can I work for you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, And so, you know, that, that, that first year that I didn't get any traction there. And then I actually, I had met Adam through Instagram. We had never met up in person, but he was living in North Van at the time I was on the Island. Um, And he had just started 
he had just started the journal of mountain hunting. I think that was, yeah, like early 2014 Okay. or, or mid 2014. Um, but we'd had a bunch of back and forth, like, Hey, we should try and get out bear hunting together. Or, you know, maybe I come there and all this back and forth. And anyways, I was in Vancouver. I was going to be in Vancouver for two weeks over Christmas because my sister lived there. And I flipped Yonkey a message and said like, Hey man, if you want to meet up for a beer or whatever, uh, you know, I'll be around. And, um, and at the time I was doing masonry on the Island, but I was able to hunt deer like really close about 10 minutes away from the job site and 15 minutes away from my house. So I was out, you know, most, most afternoons or, or mornings, like sometimes the end of my boss had just, I kind of helped get him into hunting. So there was a lot of like, okay, well it's, you know, we've got, we're going to do like some stonework today, but it's going to be pissing rain until 10 AM. Do you just want to go hunting first thing this morning for a couple hours? And, and then we'll go in and work and just make up the time on the back end. Um, so I was probably hunting like four to six days a week at that point. Okay. And so Yonke and I met up for beers and and he was basically, <laughs> we were just talking about this the other day. He's like, are you like a trust fund kid or some shit? Like, what do you do for work? And I was like, oh, I'm like, you know, I do masonry and shit, but I'm trying to, what I'm actually like working towards, I'm trying to become a wrangler. I just having a hard time kind of getting my foot in the door. And, and he, yeah, I just started the journal and he's like, oh dude, you got to come down to the sheep show in Reno. Um, and I didn't know anything about it, but uh, he, you know, told me a good case. And I was like, look, dude, I'm, I'm, ba- I'm like a 23 year old. I'm fucking broke. Uh, you know, I, I work enough to be able to go hunt and, and pay my bills and there isn't really much left over. So I don't know if I can swing that. And he's like, well, if you can get down there and get registered, like you can stay in my hotel room for free. And I'm like, all right, well, that's kind of something. And anyway, so I, he kudos to him, man. Like he really pushed me at that. And, um, and I went down there and he kind of introduced me to everyone, everyone that he'd met through the early stages of the journal, reaching out to people in the industry. Um, so there were some guides and, and some people that had done a lot of hunting and that had written articles and stuff. And we were able to meet, you know, some of the people through in Sitka and, and stuff like that. And, and I was able to make some really good connections. And then uh, that's how I ended up working for the outfitter I work for now. I just, it was one of the booths I walked into. So you and, work now you work for the same outfitter you started yeah. working for. So I'm yeah. sure you've done some like side stuff, but you basically worked for one guy consistently throughout. Yeah. yeah. My main season, no shit. Like July through October, I've worked for the same outfitter. Yeah. Okay. Which has been, it's been great. Like he's an awesome dude, great employer, uh, you know, pushes the guides really hard, but at the same time, like he always has our back and, uh, and we'll go bat to bat for us. And, it's been awesome. Yeah. It's been, it's been good, but that's basically how it started. And and he kind of looked at me and, you know, asked me a bit about myself and, and, and just said like, Hey, are you willing to work really hard for not very much money? And I was like, <laughs> fuck yeah, I am dude. That's what I'm, that's Amazing. one thing I can do. Like, yeah, I don't know shit about anything else, but, uh, yeah. And that, that's, that's sort of how that started. And, um, man, it was such a, like, I had and so for no people who don't clear. understand Western guiding, and I'm going to be even more specific and say like horse centric guiding, which is mm-hmm. what the majority of British Columbia's um, 
sheep guiding relies Absolutely. on. Not all of it, but the majority of it for sure. Yeah. Predominantly because we have to use fixed wing aircraft like the Yukon does it. And I think that gives them, or is it, is the Yukon and the D NWT? Just the NWT. Just the NWT. Yeah. So that kind of gives that, that there's a whole other kind of thing going on over there. But the fact that we have to use fixed wing aircraft the fact that we don't have the friendliest of regions, like the Yukon has a lot more open areas to land. Absolutely. Kind of narrows you down. Like if you can't get there on a jet boat, you're kind of looking at getting in on horses. So the path to becoming a guide, the most common path to becoming a sheep guide in British Columbia, walk them through it because you're going to go through, like you don't, it's not even really an assistant guide. Like the first job isn't, doesn't really even have anything to do with guiding. No, no, for sure. And, and, you know, first year wranglers, um, that, that, that's how they start out. You're, right. you're going to start out your first year for the most part, you could take someone, um, you know, someone who's, who's really competent mountain hunter, uh, maybe has a little bit of horse experience and they might get plugged in to guide moose or, or goats or something like that right off the hop. Uh, but for the most part, like you get a lot of guys start when they're, you know, 17, 18, like out of high school or early twenties, uh, you're going to start out wrangling and typically you'll wrangle for two to three years, uh, before you start actually guiding. And it's going to vary on, on people, how mature they are and everything like that. Because I think a common misconception is that like, you have to be, you know, the, the best quality in a guide is being an excellent hunter. And it's certainly a quality that's necessary. Uh, but I think it's probably not the most important, like to be a good guide. I think, you know, you just mostly have to be a people person. You have to be right. able to re read people yeah. really well and then sort of understand, you know, I might get a guy who comes in, like, let's say I get a pastor who comes in with his wife on a moose hunt from Texas. It's like that, those people are going to want an entirely different experience of their guide than right. if you come into my camp with a 40 of whiskey and say, listen, fucker, let's have a good time. Yeah. You know, let's, let's hunt hard and we'll have some drinks at night. And, and that's a totally different, you know, you have to be able to pivot how you, how you hold conversations and um, you know, the kind of stuff you talk, how colorful your language is, all that kind of stuff. And then how you actually cater the hunt to the person's abilities too. So right. um, yeah, I, I think, I don't know where I was going with that around Wranglers, but, but first off, like you're, you're going to start out as a Wrangler and really you're just, you're just a body. Like right. you're just an extra body at that. Like first year Wranglers, I've come to realize this and it's funny because, um, you know, I remember sort of how the outfitter treated me and he never treated me with any disrespect, but when I was a first year Wrangler, it was kind of like, you know, you're, it's like, look, I'm not here to communicate stuff to you. I'm communicating stuff to the head guide or the head couple guides. Right. And you're going to like, those guys can manage you Yes, and, and do, I might give you a pointer here or there, but like, I'm not here to be your buddy. Uh, yeah. I'm not here to kind of hold your hand or whatever else. Um, and so looking back on it now, I can see it's like, all right, well, there's such low expectation to some degree because, uh, very few wranglers, like really very few of them come back. Like, I don't know what right. it would be, maybe 15% of wranglers come back their second year and it's hard work, man. Like it's, you know, the average wranglers probably making like a buck 25 a day. If you're totally green, yeah. you're making a buck 25 a day. You're waking up at 5.00 AM before you get a coffee or take a shit or eat any food, you're getting up regardless of the weather and you're going to find horses in the mountains. Yeah. Uh, and it's a, it can be a very jarring experience for people, I think. Um, so yeah, it's not, it's, it's really not glorious at all, but it's, it's really integral to a, like to a, 
to a horseback operation, having someone to do that, like frees up, frees up the guide to be able to really just focus on the hunt itself. And that's something that the first guide that I ever worked for was still a guide that I guide with today. Um, but he was, he was really great in always kind of making me feel like what I was doing was important. Even if that was right. like, you know, we'd ride up into a high mountain pass and then he'd be like, Hey, look, dude, we got to go, but we just saw some Rams and they're heading away from us. We're going to have to go backpack for five days. You're going to sit here in this, in this meadow with the horses for five days and just shepherd them basically yep. make sure they don't take off. Um, you know, and, and it's like, that's tough sometimes for a young wrangler to sit there and, and be like, okay, well, what do I have? Like 24 hours a day is a long time when all yeah. you're doing is basically sitting in a camp. And on top of that, when you're not, when you don't have like a great depth of experience in the mountains and you're like, okay, well, there's grizzly bears and wolves and wolverines. And what happens if the horses take off on me? And I have to, you hear these nightmare stories about, you know, the horses go 15 kilometers back to the last camp and I have to just go walk there. Yeah. Like river crossings and all, and then bring them back all the way up here. Um, so there's, there's all that, but he always did a great job at saying like, look, we can't do, you know, we can't go off and kill a ram backpacking if we don't have someone to take care of the horses. Right. So you're like, you know, you are just as important as me in making like in success for the client. And I think that yep. was really, that was really helpful for me. And that's something that I've always tried to carry forward, uh, with my wranglers, but that's kind of like, uh, I don't even know if I really touched on that, but generally you're going to wrangle for like three years. So you're basically, you know, you later on in that you're becoming more of an assistant guide and your guides right. going to have the guides you're working for. Hopefully if they also understand what it means to be a good mentor, you know, they're going to walk you through their decision-making on a stock. Uh, they're going to ask you questions. Like you get in, you start looking at sheep or maybe even you're a really long ways off and you're looking at goats and they're going to start asking you like, okay, well, you know, tell me about what you're seeing in your spotting scope. Do you think it's a billy? Do you think it's a good billy? Do you think it's mature? Why do you think that? Okay. And, and so maybe I agree that it is, I would then say like, okay, so how would you tackle this? Do we just go, right. you know, burn leather this afternoon and try and get up there? Do we go the next day and, and make a couple days of it? Would you go up this way? Would you go up that route? Like trying to get them to think, uh, you know, to break up that, like that cycle of just listening to the guide and think critically for themselves on selves on how you would actually tackle that terrain and, and sort of manage, manage things within the hunt, depending on who your client is and, and all that. Yeah. And then, so, so when you transition, cause this is the other thing that I've, it was funny. I heard, um, so my buddy Spencer, he just got into wrangling and he's done one year and he, mm -hmm. he's totally going back for a second year. He couldn't be more excited. And one of the guides gave him a good piece of advice too. He's like, don't be in such a rush to be a guide right away mm -hmm. because the whole thing kind of changes and there's a whole different set of pressures on you. And in some ways, if you don't, if there's aspects of the wrangling that you don't mind and you like, and it's not like a job that you hate, it's not also a bad idea to stick it out for a couple of years there because then when you do make the transition, you're going to have been around more guides. You're going to be mm -hmm. a little bit more skilled. You're going to have more experience under your belt. And his general impression coming back was that most guys are trying to get through that as quickly as possible. And that a mm -hmm. better perspective is that, that, that might not be the best way to approach it. Yeah, I, I would generally agree, but I think it's also one of those things. It's like, it, it, 
makes sense why their mentality is there, right? I mean, you're right. generally talking about like 18 to 23-year-old men. Sure. Uh, you got a lot of uh, like hormones and testosterone, yeah. a, a lot of trying to be like, hey, I want that. Like, I want the glory. I want the picture. I want yep. the handshake from the client. I want the huge sheep the tip. The big tip. Yep. <laughs> and hey, like, trust me, it's <laughs> that's it's great. But you also like, yeah, you do, you do want that. Um, you know, it, it is important to see that curve. And I think for myself, like that was maybe a bit, I, I actually did battle with that a little bit because I was supposed to, I think I was supposed to guide. I was told I was going to be guiding a sheep hunt like a year before I actually did. Okay. Um, and, and that was a tough pill to swallow, right? That it was like, okay, well then. So you, you went know, up things, there thinking you were going to get your own hunt and you didn't. Yeah. I thought I was going to get a sheep hunt. Like at that point I was already guiding. I think my second year in the Yukon, I guided the two, a moose hunt and then a caribou hunt right at the end of the season. Okay. Um, and then after that, I was, you know, I knew I had a season of guiding like goats, moose, caribou, that kind of stuff. But I was supposed to have one sheep hunt. And the way it worked out is I was packing for another guide, I think. And then the other client, uh, the, the other guide, his client killed early and then the next client flew in and it was, uh, it was two clients that came in and I was supposed to guide one and I was already on another hunt. And, um, but yeah, that was like definitely an ego check for me. It was one of those things. It's like, well, I feel like I'm ready. You know, you want the money and all that kind of stuff. But yep. I think it's, it is important in those moments to sort of like take a step back and just be like, look, not, you know, the whole world doesn't revolve around me and I can either have, you know, there's two ways that I, that I can pr approach a situation. I can either be upset that it's not going the way I want it to go, or I can choose to frame that in, into a positive and look at it from like, okay, well, what can I take away from this? What can I learn from this, um, you know, experience that I wasn't expecting to have, but I think there's always going to be lessons, you know, there's always going to be some lessons, something you can pick up working with doesn't matter who it is. And, and another guy that I worked for actually had great, um, he had some great advice around that. And, and he told me, I think it was my second year wrangling. And he told me like, you know, before you know it, dude, you're going to be, you're going to be guiding sheep and blah, blah, blah. And just one thing I want you to remember is that it doesn't matter if it's a first year wrangler or a client who's got four slams under his name, there's always going to be something you can learn from someone out here. Hmm. And, and it doesn't matter if that's just a different way to, you know, tie a knot or uh, like rig up a horse or troubleshoot something, or it's an entire, like, or if it's a huge lesson around maybe something aging sheep or their habits or, or whatever else. So I think that was like, really, I, I did hold on to that. And I think that was, that was helpful and made things a little easier, but for sure, I think, it's tough. It's tough. Right. It's like, yeah, you get young guys and they want, they want that glory. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I think it's also nice wrangling too, because you don't have pressure. You yeah. got the pressure to go like, don't get me wrong. It's, it's a tough, it's a really tough job. And if the, if those horses take off, like if my wrangler comes into camp two hours after he left to go get the horses and tells me he can't find the horses, I'm going to tell him to go back out and find them. Yeah. And don't come like, you know, take some food or whatever, but that's your job, man. Like that's your only job. So you don't come back if you can't, if they went 17 kilometers, send me an inreach and, you know, we'll go hiking for the day, but that's, that's your gig. And, you know, and there's all of these ways that you can manage them to kind of try and avoid that. And right. just like anything in life, right. There's usually signs leading up before the major catastrophe happens with them. But um, yeah, I, I think that is, that's, that's really good advice for guys. Like if they, you know, if they, if they're willing to be patient, then you've you've always got a lot of shit you can learn, and you can learn a lot better when there isn't eighty k of pressure sitting over top of your head. 
I remember one of the, uh, it's a long story and I won't get into it all, but I, I, there was this one point in my life I was living in the bush with this super old dude and he was like 75 years old and he had nine certified trades. And nice. we were building like a little like screened in porch off of mm -hmm. his, uh, the back of his house. And uh, he went and he went to go use the skill saw for something. And I was like trying to help him out. And this was before a lot of like my, my, my real working career. Like you mm -hmm. have boy jobs and then you graduate one day and all of a sudden you have man jobs, right? Mm -hmm. Like you go from being a deli clerk in a grocery store to being like in a, a framer on a house. And these are like two totally different worlds where you get, get people are nice to you in the grocery store. People tell you you're a fucking asshole and you know, mm -hmm. and you, you like get treated very differently and you become a man in this other world. And this was kind of just before all that stuff for me. And I remember he went, he picked up the skill saw and uh, he went to go cut something with it. And he goes, why is there no power to the skill saw? And he goes, and I said, I, I don't know, man, you didn't tell me to plug it in. And he goes, your job as the apprentice is to be looking around your circumstances at all times and predicting mm -hmm. what your journeyman is going to need before he knows he needs it. It's like, it's not rocket science to know that, you know, this piece of lumber was going to have to get cut in half because we're about to go put this arch in or whatever the situation was. And mm -hmm. you could have deduced pretty quickly that this fucking thing needed to be plugged in. And like, that was such like, that was probably the single most valuable lesson like I ever had in my working career because I never forgot that. And every single job that I took I was the guy with the initiative. Like I was looking around like what needs to be done next? Like what's the bottleneck going to be two, three, four steps from now that we need to fix or what needs to be done. And that is such, when you finally get to the point in your life, when you're hiring people and people are working for you and, and you're just dying, like somebody, please show me that ability to like look at things holistically and problem solve without me. Like you don't get paid for, and you know, that's what people need to learn. Like you don't get paid. Well, you can get paid to be told what to do, but you're going to make very little money and you're going to get treated like shit. But when you start becoming that person who is able to be like forward thinking and show initiative and problem solve before, you know, being, being told what to do, like that's such a watershed moment. Mm -hmm. And I would think that, you know, being around those types of dudes in those types of circumstances, there would be a lot of opportunities you know, both positively and negatively to learn similar lessons. Absolutely. And that was a big thing for me going into, like I was aware um, of my lack of aptitude. Like I had no fucking clue what I was doing. Right. Uh, but I've also like, you know, I had a lot of experience working uh, in, in sort of trades and stuff like that, being outside. Um, and I knew, like I knew one thing I was like, nobody else is going to outwork me. Right. I, I, I have that ability to always be asking questions, to always be looking for the next step. And I had experience before running a landscaping crew and stuff like that. Um, so it wasn't like, it's not the same as maybe some of these, some of the guys that come in and they're 18 years old. They literally just graduated high school. They've worked, like you said, something like a deli clerk job. Yeah. And they've just been told like, Hey, your job is to pull the, when the, when the, 
oven goes ding, you pull the bread out of the oven, cut it and put it in the cooling rack. And that's all you do. Or you just stock shelves all day or something like, so I had experience with all that troubleshooting and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, that was for sure. That was it. I mean, that's, that's the one thing. And I had a conversation with one of my wranglers about that this year, because there was a point where I was packing horses and he was kind of standing around waiting for the next. And I was like, Hey man, you, you know, especially on a moving day, you should never be standing around watching the guide. There's always something, whether it's like, you know, make sure go around and make sure all the rigging is tight on the horses again or, or whatever it is. Right. And, and, I think the client at the time too said this guy was a, a welder. He'd owned his own shop in uh, Saskatchewan, younger guy, late thirties or something. And he's like, that's actually just a great life lesson to like, hold on to with everything you do. Yeah. And it's true, right? Like, it's like, if you can always be, if you can always be looking, looking ahead at what you need to be done, you know, it's like, it's, it's job security. It's the best job 100%. security you can have is, is really yeah. just, and it's, but it's also something I wonder too. It's like, well, how do you teach that to people? Like, how do you teach that drive? How do you teach the initiative? This is nature nurture, man. And I think some Mm -hmm. of it is teachable and some of it isn't. I think you can hone it, but Mm -hmm. I also think it's one of those things. If that spark isn't there, I don't think it's something you can give to people. I think if people have that, you know, thirst to learn and I ran engineering crews for 15 years in BC and I probably went through 150 junior compassmen in that time. And like, Mm -hmm. you get to a point where you just, within the first week, you just know, yeah. Like this is somebody For I'm sure. going to put energy into, or this is somebody I'm not. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to be the smartest guy. I don't even care if you know how to do the job. Like, it's funny. I, I work with big corporations now and we talk about like hiring and I'm on a couple of like entrepreneur organizations. And like the message that I've been getting lately is that you hire for culture and fit. Most people don't give a shit if you actually know how to do the job. Like Mm. the technical part of something is actually so much easier to train than that, than the drive and that culture fit and the Mm. ability to, to mold into the organization. And it's like, I'm sure you guys see the same thing out. Like the personality is almost more important than anything else, especially Mm. in your situation. Like, cause you're going to be in such stressful circumstances and you're going to be trusting your life to these other people that you're out there with. And if you can Mm -hmm. do that, then making sure the guy knows the right knots for the right rigging, or if he sets something up wrong a couple of times, like that's easy shit to fix. Mm -hmm. I think that other shit is, is bigger and tougher. Absolutely. Yeah. You can teach, you know, you can teach people how to age sheep. Yeah. You can't, you can't, it's hard to teach them, you know, not to be lazy, not to yes. opt, opt to take the easiest route out and, and all yep. that kind of stuff. hundred percent. So, 100%. so what sure. is, I feel like you've done this admirable job of like setting out all these goals, coming out here, you know, drive, discipline, commitment, you know, achieving these goals. So like what gets you out of bed now? Having, you know, done eight seasons, six as a guide, what, what's this next year? Like, what are your own goals? Is it, are they starting to become more personal goals, more business goals? Are they still related to guiding, but it's, but, but they, but they manifest themselves differently now? Like, what is it for you that, that is driving you moving forward? Mm, I think it's kind of a mix. I mean, like, obviously I'm maybe not obviously, but like I'm, I'm in my thirties now, uh, we'll be getting married in June. Congratulations, uh, yeah, man. Thanks. Um, big step. Yeah. Yeah. Excited about that. Um, and we've been together for, for almost, a, well, not actually almost a decade, but three quarters and, and, uh, 
and yeah, and, and that's all been great. And and so I have some personal goals, obviously, as far as like, you know, that and, and moving forward and having a family and stuff like that. Yeah. As far as the, like on the hunting side of things, I think the, the biggest things that I'm, I think hunting and ski touring sort of both fill, fill a need in my life, a very similar right. one. And that's like, in part being in those places. Um, yeah. And then also I'm sure the, you know, pushing yourself and, and all that kind of stuff. I've never really been, I mean, Yonke and I are very different in that way. And I would assume I'm probably very different than you in that way. I've never been a super competitive person. I've okay. been competitive with myself, um, in all of the, you know, and all the sports and stuff I did, it was, I'd never really, I never thrived in team sports environments, but individual stuff I preferred. And it was always kind of that internal battle to push myself. And I think that's still, um, you know, I think in some, in a lot of ways, like I'm whatever you want to call it, blessed or, uh, just fortunate that I, it's like, that's just in me that to yeah. the drive, the drive for myself to want to still be out there is not something I struggle with. Like there's, it's not even a second question. It's I, there's nothing for me. There's no, there's never been anything that, that feels like that for me. Right. So like guiding, being able to make money, uh, you know, to, to be able to support myself, in doing something that I love that much that I legitimately forget that I'm working for two weeks at a time, right. you know, or 10 days. And you'll like kind of have this like aha moment, like shit, I'm making money right now. Yeah. And it's actually pretty decent money. Yeah. Um, so for that, like, that's kind of easy. Like it's just, it, for the most part, I obviously go through periods in the year where I'm kind of like, all right, I'm, you know, time to unplug and, and not really focus on hunting. Um, but for the most part, it's just really driven. And I just, the more I can learn, like that's it. I think it's like anything, right. It's the more, the more you learn about it, the more you realize that like you're, you, you start to see your gaps of knowledge. Right. And, and even as I go on and on and on, and I'm so much more experienced now, my decision-making as a, as a guide and a hunter is so much better than it was, but that's also opened my eyes to all of the stuff that I don't know. Um, and I think that that's like, yeah. I mean, I think hunting is like this great sort of metaphor for life in some ways, uh, where it, it's so much of it. So so many lessons that you have there, you can pull across into your day-to-day -day life, um, you know, be it your relationships or career or whatever. And there's, there's so much teachable, so many teachable moments there. Um, but I think for me, it's like, it's always, there's just so many questions, so many questions that you'll never answer. Uh, but, but being able to continue to push, continue to learn, for me, that's, that's, I really enjoy that with hunting. And then, and then also just like kind of being in community, having that, having that community going on different hunts, seeing some of my buddies succeed, you know, seeing some like, and I really enjoy hunting with guys that are like, you know, as competent as me in the mountains. And I also enjoy hunting with people that have a very low level of competency in the mountains and seeing them succeed and maybe, you know, shoot a bear or, a deer or something like that. I mean, I think that's, it's always, it's always super gratifying to be able to share those experiences. Yeah, man. I feel like that's an area I want to start working on. I tend to do things solo. And, mm. uh, I think I had a little bit of fellowship this year and I got out for some, for some hunts with some dudes and I really liked that. And I think also, you know, giving back and maybe helping some other people get out is something I want to focus on in the coming years as well. Um, so one, one topic I wanted to talk, I wanted to talk about because both of us are, 
content creators for lack of a better term. And both of us host podcasts. And, you mm-hmm. know, I sent you this email that, uh, a gentleman named Fred wrote in and just to give some context. So my buddy, Bob comes on the podcast, uh, last two weeks ago and shares a story about a goat hunt. And while sharing the story of the goat hunt notes, the unit number of where the goat hunt was, uh, it is an LEH tag and it is a pretty like one-to-one. So like, let's say it is not a widely sought after tag. I'm not going to comment on the quality of the tag because personally I know nothing about this unit, but I do think it is safe to say that there are some tags in British Columbia that just because the odds are pretty decent doesn't mean they're not actually really good tags. It just means everybody hasn't gotten onto the fact that those are particularly decent tags. So Fred writes in this email, super thoughtful, like really nice email. Like it wasn't, it wasn't like overly negative at all. It was uh, it was a great email. And basically uh, very politely asks me to beep out unit numbers moving forward. And mm-hmm. I think even noted that like Bob probably hadn't done this on purpose and it wasn't, you know, and it got me thinking that, Okay, so first let's 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 talk about like the kind of the cut and dry issue at hand because it does affect we'd be an idiot if we didn't think it, you know, it doesn't take that many people applying for a unit to. Now the funny thing is he didn't actually see any goats. So that I couldn't help but I did want to say that in reply. I'm like you might want this guy to tell people <laughs> where he went because the fact that he didn't see anything, people are not going to be falling all over themselves, but it's also his first goat hunt. So it's not really, you know, a great illustration of what could be potent- possible within that unit. But you, I forwarded the email to you and I kind of said, mm-hmm. Hey, let's have a little chat about this. So just as, as, as a broad topic, what what are your thoughts on this issue? Yeah, I we do everything we can to try and remove um, locations. There's been lots of, you know, podcast notes. So uh, Mike yeah. Peterson from the Rookie Hunters, he does all of our like podcast editing and stuff like that. Um, and so anytime we have something, you know, sometimes I might lose my train of thought or you get a dog barking in the background from a guest or whatever it might be. There's always little glitches and stuff and very, I, I would say ours are usually, especially now, it's usually more of a free roll. Like yeah. more often than not, I might say, Hey, uh, you know, we, the ending was a little weird. Can you cut, we did a double take or something, you know, or it like outroing someone. Um, but yeah, for sure. I always mark down if someone, if someone gives too specific of a landmark, uh, I'll always mark that down the timestamp and remove that. I think, you know, it's interesting because I've, I have buddies who are newer hunters in BC and have since I was a newer hunter in BC. And, and I think there's always been this perception that's like that gatekeeping, right? Right. And that like, kind of like, oh, well, you guys know all the stuff and someone else told you, so why can't you tell me? And, and I think he mentioned this actually in the email, like there's a difference, yeah. you know, for a one-to-one exchange. Yeah. I mean, before, I don't, I don't know that I, I can't remember if I told you any specifics, but before your first goat hunt or winter goat hunt, sorry, uh, we talked on the phone and, we and did. I'm always, I'm always happy to share. Like I, you know, in cases like that, 
uh, especially on a hunt like that, I've told people exactly where I've, you know, where I've killed goats before, because it, at the end of the day, if you're going to drive all the way up there and you're going to actually bust your ass to get in there and do the work to get up to where the goats are and all that kind of stuff, like, Hey, that's, that's most people won't do that. So I don't have a yeah. problem <clears throat> sharing that, but I think, and this is something that I've kind of battled a lot with through the progress of our films over the years is like, yeah it's so easy to, to pick out where people are hunting, you know, especially. Well, let's take that goat hunt is a great example too, because there's no way to hide where you are because Mm -hmm. if you are up there during a certain time of year and you don't have an LEH tag, there's really only one place where you could be. I mean, there's a couple places within that one place, but there's only one open area. So, I mean, that was one of the things I thought of when he sent it, because I think I think I agree with him 100% in principle. I think my only retort is in order to put out content, I think we are implicitly accepting a little bit of collateral damage. Yeah. I, I just, I, I think for me, it's like, that's, that's the part that I struggle a lot with. And sure. it depends on what the situation is like, yes. You know, in the case of, in the case of our, our uh, winter goat film, um, like, you know, everyone who's seen it and done their research can find out exactly where we are. Yes. But what we tried not to do was showcase where we were. We didn't right. talk about, you know, whether or not that was an LEH. We didn't yep. talk about where, where the closest towns were. Um, we tried not to film too much around there. And, yep. you know, you try and kind of pull those sections out. And then the people who are going to do the homework are going to do the homework. Like I'm competent enough at this point in Google Earth sleuthing that I've had buddies in Alaska send me a picture of a sheep that was killed in an area I've never even looked at. And, two, you know, two glasses of whiskey and two hours later, I found the peak. <laughs> Right. You know, based off a little like alpine tarn that's 200 yards long or something like that. Um, so, I, you know, it's like you can never, you are right. There is going to be some level of collateral. What I always think is like, especially with something like goats, um, you know, what potential negative impact could I be having yeah. on that species? And, and with goats, it's like, there's a, there's a, I think there's a higher percentage of people who end up killing nannies because they've experienced such a difficult hunt right. that, they, that they're then like, well, I'm here, you know, some I'm of taking it, something home and, and they're not a hundred percent sure. Right. But it's like, they've put so much into it and often yeah. goat hunting is going to be, it's going to be like the, some of the hardest hunts you ever do, especially that time of year. Yeah. So it would, it would be hard for me. Uh, you know, given, given my background in guiding and then, you know, my feelings around conservation and stuff and my support of conservation, it would be difficult for me if I found out that say one of those areas closed for general open season, because there was an increase in nanny harvest and it was due to, you know, more exposure and people who maybe didn't have all of those, like the, all of the experience to walk away from a goat have now been, been thrust into it, um, you know, through, through all of this, the internet e-scouting and all that kind of stuff. So that, that's definitely something I always battle with. I think we just try and err on the side of caution and, and remove all, all locations. And when you're filming, like you try, but I mean, shit, 100%. it's not, it's, it's like with mountain peaks, especially like you film a peak and if there's a river in it or a body of water, like everyone knows where it yeah. is. So, and I, I have another point I want to make, but I want to close this one first. So I think for me, it was, it was a learning lesson because I do mm. remember he said the unit number. And I remember thinking to myself, Ooh, that's weird. Like I wouldn't, 
I would, mm-hmm. I'd say a region, like I was in region eight, you know, mm-hmm. like I went whitetail hunting in region eight. I think that's an acceptable, For people, sure. you know, like you, that gives you a rough idea of where I was in the province. I think that's a totally acceptable thing to say, or I was sheep hunting in region seven. That's totally acceptable mm-hmm. to say. Um, but when you did say the specific unit number, I, I did, I did think to myself, I'm like, oh, that's a little bit sensitive. And especially because it wasn't an LEH tag. And I think this is an important conversation to have because, and Bob knows what he's doing. He's not like one of these guys who's like brand new to hunting or anything. So I don't want to say that he is, but we've all had those conversations when guys come right out and say, can I have a spot or where'd you go hunting? And everybody, you have to have like one of those teachable moments when you're like, that's actually a really unacceptable, it's like, Mm -hmm asking what color panties your wife is wearing. For sure. Like, yeah. this is not a question yeah. you you ask. Like, and it's okay that you don't know that's a question you ask. I think we also need to say, that's not information you share. Yes. Because maybe you're okay giving that up. And this was Fred's point. And I think it's a point well taken. And I need to, you know, he, he I, I failed a little bit, my audience, because I didn't, and it's a good learning lesson for me, is he's like, well, maybe I've worked really hard at finding that. And now because somebody else had a slip up on your show, maybe that attracts more attention or whatever the case may be. And I think he has a valid point. And I mm-hmm. think I think you can talk about a hunt and I think you can share lessons about a hunt that don't require that level of specificity. Like I think Absolutely. it's different when you start to lose like if I blur out everything in the background of a sheep hunt, it's like, what the, f- I don't even want to watch this anymore. For sure. it, so I think you have to maintain the, uh, the integrity of the storytelling. Mm-hmm. But I think when you can protect the, the collateral damage and it doesn't impact, like your towing the line is a very great example. It didn't matter where the fuck that was. Mm-hmm. That could have been 200 more kilometers North. It could have been in Alaska. It could have been in NWT. Like it didn't matter for that story to be told the -hmm. way it was. We didn't need to know exactly where it was. And you guys were still able to communicate the same emotions and the same narrative and the same lessons, um, without getting hyper-specific and with, with, by excluding, you know, certain, certain elements that would have, you know, been a little bit more. And I almost feel like for those dudes that do do the digging, it's like, well, okay, that's your, you get it now. Cause you were the, you did the, the extra mm-hmm. effort. You know what I mean? And I think that's what Fred was saying in his email too. Like for the guys who are pouring over the draw odds and pouring over Google earth and looking for these little inconsistencies when in, when an area that has higher harvest statistics, but still has better odds and finding that for the dudes who are doing that work, they deserve to get that little edge and then to just kind of, you know, blow up their spot like that. And not like he even did on this particular one. I don't think it's a particularly well um, sought after, after unit, but I do think, I think he had a valid point. I, and I, and I do, I do agree with him. Yeah, for sure. I also think it, it is one of those things that when it comes to, maybe this is just a side note, but that when it comes to uh, like low, Areas that have a really like really good draw odds and then a yeah. high number of tags, right? Yeah. Which I'm I'm just gonna guess that that's that's kind of where this falls under, but a low success rate. Yeah. What that usually tells me is 
it's probably nasty as fuck to get into. Yeah. There's probably a decent population of animals, but it's still because of the terrain, whether it's terrain or, you know, weather or, or something t- during that given time, there's a reason that they're giving out so many and it's so easy. And it's usually, you, you're going to see that kind of attrition of, of people that are, you'll see a spike in the odds, like maybe from this pod, from your podcast, like next year, you know, those odds are going to be five to one odds. Right. And then the next year they're going to be two to one odds. And then they're going to be back to one to one odds because yeah. all the people who were like, Hey, sweet and easy X hunt, they go in there, get their ass handed to them. And they're like, Oh, okay. Well, they, you know, cruise back out and then it's kind of the same rotation of guys that do yeah. it. But yeah, I think like for me, it's like for any content that we, that we put out, that's sort of front of my mind is less so, you know, am I burning other hunters? Although that's an interesting perspective that I quite frankly, hadn't thought of before you forwarded me that email, but more so, you know, am I burning those animals themselves? Like right. I don't ever want to have in the same way that I, you know, you or I wouldn't go out and, and just got shoot a deer and be like, well, you know, I didn't, didn't hit that one, didn't find it. So I'm just going to go shoot another, like you're going to, you're trying to minimize your, your negative impact on the wildlife. Uh, for me, I look at it kind of in the same vein. So the other point that you brought up that I, that I think bears repeating is this, like there's barriers to entry for a reason. Like, again, mm-hmm. let's take our goat hunt. I, you want somebody to have a certain level of experience and drive in order to get up there. And I think mm-hmm. if you made it too easy, like I've had dudes email me and want more information and I'm kind of not withholding, but it's like, I don't give it out real easily because mm-hmm. it's like, I don't know. I catch this, like, I'm like, ah, how serious are you really? Like, and I don't want to send you to a place like that. If you're, so if you're able to figure things out without being spoon fed, then that probably also means that you're hard enough to get in there and out and, and be Okay. Mm-hmm. And so I do think some of those barriers, it's not that we're trying to withhold information to, to rob success from the up and coming generation. And I've given this example on my podcast so many times, people are probably sick of hearing it. But a lot of the times, the old guys want to watch you fail first because mm-hmm. that proves to them your level of commitment. Like the number of emails I've gotten after a failed hunt film has gone up from like mm-hmm. legit dudes who have zero social media presence and don't give a fuck about fuck, but like are like hardcore 20, 30, 40 year vet BC hunters who are like, listen, next time you're going up there, shoot me an email or whatever. Mm-hmm. After they watch me go in there and get the shit kicked out of myself and I didn't ask anybody for help and I just went and bashed my head against a brick wall for 10 days trying to figure it out by myself. After doing that, the amount of help you get, it changes dramatically. And I do think that the, the focus tends to be on like, help me first so I can go be successful. And I always try and say, just go fail. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. When you come back from failing, people are going to be way more open and eager to help you out because you've proven you're, you're willing to do the work. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a, and I want to make one exception to this because I know some people are going to watch some of my hunt films and they're going to call me out on this and I want to get out ahead of it. So when I took my archery bull in New Mexico, I got a draw tag in unit 36 and it's like a premium for anybody who understands how the draw odds work in. This would be like getting the fucking Kamloops cheap tag. 
maybe not quite that good, but I mean, it is, I think there were 11 non-resident tags given out the year that I got mine. Like the, the odds mm -hmm. are astronomical. It's the type of thing you are only ever going to pull once in your life. And when I put up my film, I put the unit number in the film. For starters, because mo anybody who watched the film and is from New Mexico, you're going you're gonna to see certain landmarks and you're going to kind of know where I was anyways. Mm -hmm. And also, when I posted that I drew that tag, and this is a weird thing, there's a big difference between British Columbia and the States in the, in the perception of premium units. If somebody, because you're, you're normally only ever going to draw these premium units once because you've had mm -hmm. to build points. New Mexico is an, is an exception because there, it's a pure lottery state. But when you, when you pull a pure premium unit, you will have other dudes come out of the woodwork who've got that one before, mostly because they know they're never going to go back in there Absolutely. again. And you can't blow up the spot. Yeah. Because you can't, it's such a hard thing. There's only 10 dudes a year going in there anyways. the entirety of the U.S. putting in for it. Uh, you couldn't make it any worse. Like everyone yeah. knows this is a killer unit. And so I wanted, I got so much help from complete strangers that mm -hmm. resulted in me having a phenomenal hunt. When I put my hunt film up, I put the unit number right in the thing. Mm -hmm. And I get very little, one or two people, and it's been up there for like four years three years and only one or two people have ever said, and it's different because I've put general hunts up and people are like, asshole, I know where you are in Montana. And I'm like, it's a shitty fucking over the counter unit. Who cares? But because yeah. it's their backyard honey hole, they don't want that up there. But no one has, has flamed me for this unit 36. And I know when the Mexico draw comes out, because every single year I get three to five emails in the same yeah. day. And it's always, bro, I just pulled unit 36. Um, can I ask you a couple of questions? And normally they don't, they're not asking for locations and stuff. And I tell the same thing to everybody every year. Here's my phone number, call me. And the first thing I say is like, listen, I'm going to have three or four phone calls this year. And I'm going to tell everybody the same thing. I'm going to tell you where I got my bull and I'm going to tell you where I camped. And I'm going to tell you the experience that I had because mm -hmm. it was a phenomenal experience. And I don't think anybody is hunting this unit the way I hunted in it. Like most of them are road hunting and day hunting. And I went into the back country and I had this crazy five days and it was amazing. And the amount of times I've got that text back, like mid-September with somebody's downed bull being like, had the hunt of a lifetime, can't thank you enough. And it's like, I'm never, so I just wanted to say like, I think there are rare exceptions when Absolutely. you know that, that it, it is okay to share information and you're mm -hmm. not, you're not going to blow up a spot. But I think those are, those require some experience and some nuance to like flesh out. And I think your earlier statement that it's better to err on the side of caution and share less information than more is probably the better like overall strategy, except for a few rare exceptions. Yeah, for sure. There's always, you know, there's always going to be those things that fall outside of the spectrum. And I think, you know, you, you did hit the nail on the head when you said the, the States has just a different system. Yeah. Than us. Like, but it's like know, a Stave Lake elk tag. If you pull that Stave Lake elk tag and you go on hunting BC, somebody's going to DM you and tell you where to go because for there's sure. only two of them a year. And if you're not the tag holder, why wouldn't you, 
you know, that, that would be an example of where somebody is going to give you some insider information because Absolutely. people just want to see somebody go in there and have a good hunt. Cause it's like, there's only two of them and it ain't the rest of us. And again, like you mentioned, you couldn't make that any more popular of a draw. Like Absolutely. no more people are going to put in for that unit than are currently already putting in for it. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I think like when it comes to other premium units, I think people in BC, like there isn't the same, there isn't the same media around it, whether that's stuff no. like Mossback Guides or yeah. uh, Go Hunt or, or any of those kind of hunting fool. There isn't, yeah. we don't have that in BC. And then on top of that, I think those like premium areas, a lot of times people kind of keep that as close to their chest as possible. So, yeah. you know, there's certain zones where I know if I wanted to, if I wanted to go and, try and kill a winter goat for myself. And my only consideration was trying to maximize score. There's be a couple of different zones I'd be looking at and there's not going to be anywhere that that's published. Hopefully, I don't know, maybe it is somewhere, but for the most part, that's kind of, that's going to, that stuff's going to be kept a little bit tighter and quieter. And, you know, I think 100%. lots of times it, it maybe doesn't matter that much. You know, the guys, there's only going to be a certain percentage of people killing anyways. So I also think people underestimate how hard hunting in British Columbia is. Like I've sure. hunted all over North America and I still say it's the hardest place I've ever hunted. Yeah. I think we have the greatest opportunity in mm -hmm. all of North America, but I don't think we have the greatest target environment in all of North America. I think we have like really low density of animals for the most part compared to mm -hmm. other. And I think that has to do with our terrain. I could make some comments about our wildlife management that in my own personal opinions, I think there's, we could be doing certain things differently, but again, I'm not in charge, so I'm not going to shit talk anybody. Um, but I think that's another reason why you see this. I don't I don't, I don't even know what to call it. But it's it, it it's a tough crowd in BC, man. I, I've mm -hmm. got, I've hunted a lot of places, and it's not like this, not as much like this, anyways. As you go, other people like it's very clicky in mm, in yeah. BC, and I get what the new guys are. You know what I mean? I understand. I understand their frustrations because it does feel like there's this kind of like insider outsider mentality. But I think a lot of that is because it's fucking hard, man. Mm -hmm. Like these guys who take an elk every single year, it's because they've been doing that for like generations or they failed 15 years first before mm -hmm. they finally figured things out where it's not like, and I've gone hunting elk in Montana and Wyoming and like, you don't have to be a fucking rocket scientist yeah. to go down there and get an elk. Like, I'll say it. It is not the same, you know, John Barklow would call it varsity level archery hunting. Like, it's of not course. varsity level down there. It's just not. Yeah. This is a totally different game. Um, and I'm sure there's areas that do have higher densities where people do have easier hunts. But for us mountain guys who like to kind of get in the steep and deep, like, I think British Columbia is one of the hardest places in the world to hunt, like writ large. I, I would agree. I haven't hunted all over everywhere, but obviously my clients are, yeah. have and are from a wide, wide spectrum of places. And, and certainly that's something that they're often amazed at is how, how big and how difficult BC is to hunt. Man, I've still never, I, I've been on seven elk hunts in British Columbia and I've still never taken an elk. I've never really gotten close and I've, I've gone to like Haida Gwaii for three years. I've gone up in seven for two years. I've gone like, 
I've gone a bunch of different places and it's just like, it's this nut that I just can't mm-hmm. seem to crack. And I like, I'm willing to own that as well. You know what I mean? Like, I think one of my, fa- I was talking to a buddy on the phone this year and he's like, you're not scouting, man. And he goes, those guys who are taking one every year and he's one of them, he's like, a lot of them are going on like a family trip for a couple mm-hmm. weeks in July and August and they're taking up the travel trailer and they're setting it up on a lake and they're bringing the quad and they're scouting for a few weeks in the summer and they're getting their game plan sorted out. And it's like, you may only see the guy go up and be successful for seven, eight days in September, but a lot of these like homegrown guys who are successful every year, same as the sheep guys, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like they're going in on scouting trips in the summer or in the spring before they go in, or they've been going into the same area for 10 or 15 years. Like Mm -hmm. I think there's, I think it looks like people go in and are successful in this like snapshot in time. But the thing I have to remind myself of in BC is that most of these guys who are repetitively, because that's what I'm interested in. I don't care about the one guy who got one crazy animal. The people I'm impressed with are the people who are successful year after year in BC. Like Mm -hmm. those are the guys that I really look up to. And I think those guys for the most part are doing a lot of out of season legwork. Yeah. I think so. It's something I always tell my buddies is like, um, you know, you can't, you need time in the field. Right. And whether that's time in the field, if you've only got, if you've got, you know, a demanding job and you can only take seven days in the hunting season and and then, you know, have some weekends on the either end, then it's like, you need to find time. You need to find ways to put that time in, in other places. And it's tough, certainly for stone sheep. Like that's one of the toughest things. Well, and that's lower mainland guys, right? Cause you're driving to hell's half acre and back like, and you're fighting guys who live in Fort Nelson and Fort St. John. And it's like, those guys can go out on the weekends to go Weekend, scouting and stuff. Yeah, and it's just like in the jet boat shit just ain't fair, man. That's just, that's sure. it's the way the cookie crumbles, yeah. but it's definitely, it definitely plays into it and you can't help but be, yeah, it's, it is definitely, there are fr- some frustrations to be had. Anyways, I don't and know. I also think it's one of those things too. Like sometimes I think people's expectation um, right. you know, it, whether that's because of, uh, you know, what they see on Instagram or even watching films where, especially if, if people are only putting out films that are successful, yeah. like, I think that's one of the things that, uh, Rinella has always done really well is I that, appreciate that. He'll, sh- yeah. he'll fucking show everything. Yeah. Like he'll show himself, you know, me making some bumbling idiot mistake and he'll show himself killing some wicked animal. And it's not that perception that everything's perfect. Uh, which is good. It's an honest representation of hunting. It's good for hunters to see. It's good for non-hunters to see. But I think sometimes people can have those expectations. And what I often think of it or say to people is like, look, if you're booking a stone sheep hunt, um, you know, in our case, like we book 14 day stone sheep hunt. So 14, 14 days of hunting for a guided hunt with the outfit that I work at. Um, Now those are professional guides who've spent a bunch of time, you know, through their years wrangling a bunch of time, stone sheep hunting, and then guiding as well. Some of the guys have three decades of experience. Uh, you have horses, you have knowledge of the area, you have boat and, and or plane access. Um, you know, you have all of these things working in your favor and the outfitter still thinks that 14 days is the best amount of time for us to maximize our success rate. And we're still not a hundred percent on success. Yeah. So when I look at that, it's like, all right, well, 
yeah, of course, like if you only go in for 10 and I realize not everyone can just take 17 days away from home and work and all those kinds of things. But if you go in for 10 and it's your second time hunting stone sheep, you shouldn't have the expectation that you're yeah. going to come out of there successful when the professionals feel they need 14. Yeah. So I think a lot of times it's like going into things with it, like managing your expectations. And, um, but I think it's also one of those things that like, that's probably a positive that podcasts and other content can have is because you can have those conversations, right? You can have conversations like this. And if that changes, you know, some, some young guy or girl listening to this and they're like, Hey, okay. Like I do want to go stone sheep hunting this year. And maybe my focus won't just be on like getting a Ram so I can have that picture or hang the mount on my wall. Uh, but just to get out there and learn and experience it and see sheep and start to study their habits and, and try and get comfortable with aging and take pictures and bring them back and have conversations. Like, I think that's what, that's the kind of good you can do in these platforms. And even make it the whole trip. Like the amount of dudes mm -hmm. I saw coming out early and I'm going to say it, and I'm sure I'll piss some people off, but the number of bullshit excuses that I was like, fucking come on, man. Like, you waited all year for this trip and you got guys coming out after five or six days citing this and that and this. And, mm -hmm. and it's like, I think the true, you know what I mean? Like go in there for 12 or 14, sit in there for 12 or 14. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I wish there was more emphasis put on, cause I think what happens is nobody, nobody understands what that mental challenge actually looks like. Mm -hmm. And then when they get in there, and they are confronted by that, that's when the brain kind of starts fucking you over and coming up with all these really good, seemingly rational explanations for why you need to leave. Yeah, my leg, you know, my foot's so sore. Oh, we're getting a little low on food or, oh, we're not really seeing the animals. And I just like, my biggest push to people is just like, st just stop, just don't give up. Like stay mm -hmm. in there for the amount of time because that's a win that you will take that no one can take away. I've got more respect for the dudes that go in there and stay their whole trip and come out empty handed, but at least you made it like you, like that in, in a lot of ways is the most difficult part about it. Luck has a lot to play with the rest with it, with it, with the actual success part of it. And I wish there was more, I wish we could you know, I kind of came to this crossroads with my filmmaking about two years ago when I realized I was never going to be a body stacker. And like the bottom line is the only way you're going to rack up insane amounts of views on YouTube is by like big giant horns. And most of the guys who are doing that are like 80% guided hunts or private land. And they're just stacking bodies. And I was like, okay, with what I do for a living and how often I can get away, like I'm never going to be that guy but I live in a province that basically has an infinite amount of unbelievably difficult hunts to do. Mm -hmm. So what I wanted to do, and I remember, I, I'm sure I talked about this to you because you were the first guy I phoned when I was going to do my goat hunt last year. And that was one of the initial drives for this goat hunt is that like, if I can't guarantee stacking a body, what I can guarantee is like an extremely physically grueling, mentally challenging hunt. And I think that's interesting for people to watch because what I, what I found out was people like kind of watched me kicking the shit out of myself. And then even if I came back empty handed, I was still getting like really positive feedback and great engagement and people liked watching it. And so I would like to see more emphasis 
put on that part of the hunt because I do mm-hmm. think it's, I think it's more indicative of the actual struggle you went through anyways. The guy who comes home with the big rack didn't necessarily work any harder than the guy who didn't. You know what I mean? In fact, probably didn't work as hard because he was able to tag out and didn't have to stay in there as long. So I'm finding myself having more respect for, I just found it really like the amount of immature animals that was taken this year and the amount of people who came out early with like a less than, you know, completely credible excuse just seemed to be higher than years past. And I feel like, you know, is still on the incline. Mm -hmm. I think so. And I mean, it's tough. Like it's tough hunting. It's, it's even, like I said, uh, my Wranglers this year, I always say to them, I kind of joke, like, you know, guiding's 98% bullshit and 2% glory photos. Yeah. And it's, I'm sort of joking, but it's sort it's kind of the same for hunting. It's like, there's a lot of elements of sheep hunting, um, say for an example, or goat hunting that are not, that are not glamorous and you kind of just get used to them and you, uh, you know, you get comfortable, I guess that's, yeah, I got a buddy in Alaska, Adam Smith, and he does a lot of goat hunts and sheep hunts and stuff like that. And he often talks about that. It's like, it's just about getting comfortable being uncomfortable. Yes. And once you kind of mentally accept that, you know, you ride that wave and you're like, all right, like, look, I'm not going to die. So I'm just going to ride this out. And that's oftentimes, like you said, right. That's, that's what it takes to be successful is like, how long can you ride this out? Sometimes that's, you know, it's, it's, you obviously need to have the right skill set and, and knowledge and how to navigate terrain and, you know, understanding thermals and all of that kind of stuff. That's huge. Absolutely huge. But if you can't, if you understand all that, or you're the fittest guy on earth and you can't hack it mentally for more than five days, or you start to get sketched out because of, you know, you saw a grizzly bear around your camp or your legs started to give it a, get a bit sore or whatever. It's like, there's always going to be, there's going to be more things nagging on your brain on a, on a big backpack sheep or goat or even mule deer hunt, any extended backpack hunt. There's going to be more things nagging on your brain that are giving you good reasons why you shouldn't be here. 100%. Then there are, then there are ones saying this yes. is good to stay. But yes. once you can kind of, <clears throat> once you can ignore that, once you can just move past that, it's like, it's, you just don't think about it anymore. No, it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and there should be certain levels of enjoyment. Like I always used to say, like there were hunters and gatherers for a reason. And my one issue, and we don't have time to get into it tonight because it's getting way past, it's getting pretty late. But I do think one of the issues that I have had with the narrative of social media and hunting is that it's like Mm -hmm. for everyone, anyone can be a hunter. And like, I kind of personally have a, like a fundamental philosophical disagreement with that. I don't think it was made. I don't think everybody was made to be a hunter. And mm-hmm. I think if you go out on one or two physical, physically challenging backcountry hunts, like you're going to know pretty quickly. And I, I, I don't say that in like a condescending manner. Like there's lots of shit that other people are good at that I suck at. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think it's, it's important to acknowledge that like, also this may just not be your thing. You know what I mean? Because for people who are into it, there is a lot more, I don't want to say there's more enjoyment, but like there's a lot less of the time that I have to force myself to be out there than I feel like some people who contact me looking for help are. And they Mm -hmm. seem to be really like convincing themselves to stay out there where it's like, I kind of have to convince myself to go home because if I don't, my wife might leave me. 
But like, yeah. if it wasn't for that, I would probably just get some fresh food and like go back for round two. For sure. Yeah. 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 No, I think you're, I think you're spot on. I think it is something that, um, you know, I, I, I do feel that it's either kind of in you or it isn't. And I think yeah. there's people who dabble in that space. I've had friends in the past where I grew up in Ontario that maybe did a season or two of duck hunting. Um, you know, and, and it would be mostly me saying, Hey, let's go out Saturday morning. I'll pick you up at this time yeah. or meet me at this gate at this time or whatever. And, and they totally loved it and had a great time. But since I moved away that, you know, might've hunted once or twice or since or something. And that's like eight years ago. And in the same way you can have, uh, like I've got a good buddy who's a, who's a bigger dude and he's, you know, working on getting into better shape for hunting and stuff like that. Um, but certainly it's not like he can just run around in the mountains super easy. And, um, you know, he was telling me his first hunt, he got his ass handed to him completely skunked and was just hooked after that. So I think right. there is that, like, it's, you either love it regardless of the situation or you don't. And if you love it, you're going to stick with it through thick and thin, uh, you know, and then I think there's probably a spectrum in between of people who love certain aspects of it. Like maybe they love that it brings out, you know, this chat, like they're the part of them that needs really difficult challenges to overcome, or they, they like this aspect, but not the, like, they don't love it as a whole. And I think when you love it as a whole, you can, you know, you can ride through any of that. And just like you said, you're not, you're not focused on you know, things other than like, Hey, I have a family at home that I need to get back yes. to at the end of this hunt. Otherwise I would just live out here for 12 months of the year. Yeah. Completely feral. Yeah. 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 For sure. I, I, I understand that one. Yeah. Listen, man, I think that's a, that's an excellent note to, to wrap things up. I got to get you back on because there's a few topics we didn't get a chance to discuss, but I'm sure no matter how long we talk, that would be the case. Obviously um, I'll put, Nolan's Instagram and the journal and all that kind of stuff in the show notes. So I'd be pretty surprised if the people who listen to my podcast don't already listen to yours, but just in case they're, they don't, um, I will forward them on that information. Anything you want to say, share, uh, pass on as we wrap things up, man. God, I wish I had something <laughs> profound, <laughs> something profound to say. Yeah, yeah. Nah, I think people just, you know, we're going into a new season here in BC. I hope everyone just gets out there and gets after it and, you know, push, push yourself and don't be stupid about it and get yourself in situations that'll kill you. But, you know, maybe those things that have been, if there's those hunts that you've always wanted to do, if you've always wanted to get up North for a sheep hunt or an elk hunt, like you can, you know, you can always start baby steps. You don't have to go all the way in on a deep fly in or something like that, but just, kind of move past the excuses and, and try and get after it. Have fun. Awesome. All right. For everybody listening, as always, if you could share, comment, subscribe, the engagement is greatly appreciated. Uh, Nolan, greatly appreciate the time. It was a fantastic conversation. So thank you for making the time and hopping on. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed that. All right. For everybody else, thanks for tuning in and we will see you next week. All right. Cheers, Nolan. Thanks.